Hey everybody, it's me. It's your old buddy Steve Simonson, and we're doing another Awesomers episode. This time we're going to talk about product sourcing as a process. So we're going to do some of these process videos from time to time. And uh, my objective with these is to kind of just share with you some of the tried and true mechanisms that we have. And if you're joining on the audio, you won't be able to see some of the the details that we go into in terms of the visual presentation, but uh, I'll talk you through it best I can. And of course, uh, you can go to the uh, YouTubes. I think that's what they call them. The kids call them the YouTubes. Uh, or over to awesomers.com and find this podcast or indeed to some of the social media channels like Empowery that may have these complete videos on display for you. Now, uh, why do I think sourcing is important uh, to talk about right now? The <laughs> I won't go into all the details, but the world is in a state of flux, ladies and gentlemen. And what that means is some of the things that worked for us, let's say pre-COVID and for 20 years pre-COVID, uh, don't work as well these days, or at least as predictably. And that's that's part of what my objective today is to discuss with you is um, no matter how the world is reacting to some of the the things that we can't quite predict, I'm trying to give us a little better shot through process at making these things work uh, a little more predictably. Okay, guys, so <laughs> here I am again, uh, just trying to get some of the uh, details fixed with this, uh, the visual part of the presentation. So as, as again, we dive into this concept, I want to remind you that you can have your own method of doing things. Uh, no problem there. Everybody's kind of got their own little twist. But I think that the lesson that I'm trying to share with you, or at least share the lessons that I've learned through experience, is that the general process when you're sourcing a product is relatively uniform. And we're going to just start from the beginning, and then we're going to uh, get right into it. So uh, again, I will try to talk through for the folks the visual part of this. And the this concept is what we call product sourcing 101, right? This is a basic concept. So as although I'm going to share several input points and process points with you, this is what everybody should be thinking about. How does this thing begin the, in terms of the process and how does it end? So the first bit, this assumes that you've already got a, a product discovery process complete, right? So it's the product discovery is a process that you went through and you went through an ideation phase or some discovery phase. And you said, you know what? This is a good prospect for me. I'm going to go try to find this item. So now you have a perspective item that you found through a discovery process. And there's any number of tools that you might use to come up with that, that product idea. Once you have the product idea, now we begin kind of the longer product sourcing cycle. And this, uh, you know, when we think of it, we have to think of every process as what is the input required and what is the expected output. And then, of course, along the way, what are any decision points that may impact the kind of the flow of that completion? So the, the number one thing that we might start with is saying, well, gosh, if we have an idea, we need a supplier. So how do we qualify and find qualified suppliers? Well, the first, very first thing you might do is you might come up with a prospect list of those potential suppliers. And then you would preliminarily qualify each of those prospects. 
So what does this mean? Um, a prospect list, you know, a lot of people think of that in terms of sales, but it's really no different in sourcing that you want to consider, gosh, who do I know already? What suppliers do I have that may be able to help me with this? Or I don't have them. So I'm going to rely on, you know, whether it's Alibaba or 1688 or whatever equivalents you may use, or I'm going to find a trading company or a sourcing agent to help me with that. Because I need to have more than one choice. If you come up with an idea and you can only find one supplier, you are not buying in a marketplace, you are buying from one fixed resource, which generally means, let's see, I want to say it carefully, generally means bad things. How about that? A single source means they have the upper hand and you don't actually know the market price. So don't do that is my advice. Um, that choke point for you in your future could, will be used against you for sure. Uh, so once you have kind of a, a potential list and you've preliminary qualified these candidates, so let's just say for the sake of discussion that you're using Alibaba because that's what uh, works so well in many cases. And you you came up with 30 or 40 of them, but you you kind of looked at some of the Alibaba metrics and some of the history and, and even some of the engagement that they had with you back and forth, um, you know, talking about this idea or what have you. And you said, you know what? Out of whatever, 10, 20, 30 that you contacted, these five or six or eight or whatever number you feel comfortable with, this group seems like they're preliminarily qualified to, to take it to the next step. That doesn't mean you've you've done the final verification. It just means the interim uh, preliminary step has been complete. That means you then say, okay, well, I've got an item candidate, um, meaning somebody who can make this item. And I've also kind of validated a basic economic viability question with them. So uh, part of your process when you're doing the preliminary qualification is not just to, you know, ask them general question, but it's kind of like, I'm looking for this item with, you know, these specifications to the greatest extent that you can qualify those specifications uh, and quantify them, by the way. <laughs> um, you want to say things like, I want this made of steel. And then you say, you know, what metal alloy number are you planning on uh, having made with your product? If it's if it's made of steel, for example, or uh, I want magnets on this uh, clasp. And then you say, well, here's the magnet specification number so that you know the, the hold strength or pull strength of the magnet. And there are many of these types of specifications. Now, I know every time I bring up things like specifications, people start to glaze over and go, oh, gosh, Steve, I don't have to do that. My supplier, they just know everything and they just do it for me. And, uh, well, I just tell you that, that you're really dancing with the devil there. If you allow somebody else to set specifications or worse yet, you produce an item with unknown specifications because good luck when you try to hold them to account later when there's a problem and there is no clear specification like this plastic or this metal or these materials, this gauge thickness, you know, stitches per inch, whatever the quantification methods that you can use so that it's an objective way of enumerating the values of your product. Right. That's fundamentally what you want. You want some objective third party way to say, uh, gosh, um, I expected this to be whatever, 100 stitches per inch. And you did it at 50 stitches per inch. And you can see in our specifications and PO, it said 100. So this is off spec. Redo it. 
that is objective versus you saying, well, I thought it was going to be higher quality, but I'm getting some complaints. Uh, that's not so, that, that's really your fault, not the supplier's fault. Uh, so as always, it's your company, your choice. You decide what to do, but I prefer more specs, not less. Uh, then you get the, you know, that product outline that you really can start to dig into. And you don't have to have everything perfect, but the broad strokes have been shared. They came back and said, this is generally what we think it's going to cost. And you said, you know what? That's in the realm of possibility. I'm going to proceed down this process. A product outline uh, means you create a brief. Here's what the product looks like. Here's the colors. Here's the, the details about materials that we just discussed. Any key differentiators and any health or safety requirements. Uh, for example, if it's an FDA type of item and you have to have an FDA factory, here's the FDA you know, requirement, you know, whatever uh, section of the FDA rules it may um, kind of talk about. There are lots of these uh, crazy compliance rules. And then you're also your work to make sure that the supplier meets those criterion, whether it's their own FDA qualifications or the right materials or the chain of custody for those materials. It just depends on the product. Finally, you're down to a narrow set of factory candidates that you have prospected, then you qualified, uh, and or will move them to the in-use phase, right? Maybe if you have a, a current supplier you already use, so you already kind of like them, they said they can do it. They should be kind of at the front of the, the curve if that's possible. By the way, in terms of product discovery, a lot of times people miss this step. Why not go to your factory and say, send me your catalog, send me your top selling items in you know, your particular marketplace. If you're selling in, in Dubai, go, hey, what are the top selling market or top selling items your factory makes for the Middle East? And see if any of those match up to your own product discovery requirements, right? And this is an idea that allows you to consolidate more purchasing with a supplier, assuming that they are uh, somebody that you want to do more business with. And they're Upsides and downsides to that, but uh, in general, the upsides outweigh the downsides. So uh, things that you want to collect uh, during this um, you know, candidate uh, prospecting and, and kind of uh, further uh, investigation process is anything that will give you information about you know, their capabilities. So any brochures, PDFs, anything they make about the product, any spreadsheets with pricing or specification details, any lab tests, any documents they have now, let's let's not kid ourselves. In some places in the world, it's really easy to fake tests. It's really easy to, you know, show, hey, here's my ISO 9001. Aren't you impressed? And then you go search the ISO 9001 database and they're nowhere to be found. So you have to, you're collecting information. This is something you're going to receive and you're going to trust it, but you're going to verify it, right? Trust but verify is a critical part of any sourcing process. And then fundamentally, you also want to try to keep your communications intact. Uh, we, we try to keep them in the same system. So we will communicate um, as much as we can through our system so that it's all documented. When you pollute yourself by using... Telegram and WhatsApp and WeChat and all these different things, you're getting too much information in different ways. And it's far better to uh, kind of keep track of it all on a single platform. So sometimes that's email, sometimes it's Slack. Uh, you know, sometimes China has trouble interfacing with things that are other than WeChat. 
you just have to decide what's best for you. But we keep it in our system and manage it from within there. Next, you move on to the supplier due diligence. So it's assuming in this case that you're not already using the supplier. Now you want to get into the, the nuts and bolts about that supplier. And you really want to get into their history and how long they've been around. And there's a whole separate sheet that we use to do supplier due diligence. But it's really a place for you to, to dig in deep and start asking questions. And, you know, I, I've dealt with, you know, thousands of suppliers, I guess, over the years. And most of the time, just asking them simple questions, you can get a sense of the answer. You can validate some of those answers, but you also get a general sense of, do I really trust the answers that I'm receiving here, right? One of the common things that suppliers will tell us, because I'll, I'll generally ask things like, all right, so what kind of claims are you getting on this? What, what kind of problems do you have? And they're like, never had any problems, right? I've never met a factory that when I reported my first problem, that I was the first guy ever in their history to have a problem. And I don't know how that's possible. Maybe I'm just an unlucky fella, but uh, uh, you have to, you know, take certain amounts of data in with a grain of salt. But the data collection that in itself is still an important part of the process. Finally, we like to put all of these suppliers in a supplier database, right? Where you can actually stack them up one against another on some sort of standardized system. So maybe it's about terms or maybe it's about price or maybe it's about the combination of all of your your most important things. And that way you have it in a database and it's easier to kind of compare. And maybe they don't quite make the cut on this one, but you have them in line for the next item that may come up. Or maybe your first supplier that you went with was great for a while and then sucked. You have a fallback plan. And just simply keeping them in the supplier database makes sense, right? It's really easy. And you can also have different types of suppliers in your database, active suppliers you're buying from. And you know, backup factories, or, you know, maybe you want to say this was a terrible factory, you keep it in your database, just so you know, never to use them. All of that is data that you're acquiring. This is, you know, organizational knowledge, and you want to put it somewhere so everybody can use it. Maybe you have a purchasing person, you know, a year from now, two years from now, they're having contact with the same supplier that ripped you off. Gosh, wouldn't it be better if they could look in the database and see that and not waste any time or take any risks? So I highly recommend supplier database. Now, finally, once you, you know, kind of get all of these uh, standardized inputs, uh, then you want to ask uh, or consider whether or not you want to use a third party to go and validate some of this stuff. Sometimes you'll do a factory audit before you start uh, buying from them, assuming that the orders are large enough and the, the volume and so forth is flowing in a, a sufficient uh, velocity and scale that justify the expense, right? I, I don't like to throw away money any more than anybody else, but if I'm going to buy one, two, three, four, five containers a month from a supplier, maybe it's worth a supplier audit just to make sure I don't get in too deep. And then I've got five or 10 or 20 containers in production and realize I got a big problem. And uh, another time I'll tell you a story about having to reject 28 containers because we didn't do this uh, audit ahead of time. Ah, uh, yes, I've made many mistakes, everybody. So uh, anyway, once you have the supplier standardized database, then you're going to be able to do um, uh, essentially a decision process. Now, maybe it's you who's making that decision all by yourself, or maybe you have a, a product uh, committee or however it's organized in your company. The point is that you've now done appropriate levels of diligence to reach a decision on, you know, is this a go or a no-go? 
right? Do we have enough to take this thing and kick it forward? And so if not, then it's time to stop it, right? It's like, you know what? I'm going to kill this project for this new item because of the following. Um, and the product savants, we have this routinely, right? Where we begin the process and the idea looks good. But by the time we went through all of the potential factory candidates, by the time we got the prices and kind of narrowed it all down, now the economics didn't work out or the underlying market had shifted in such a way that, you know, we, we can't pursue it. Now, we don't want to lose all that. We save all of that stuff in the project, uh, but we disconnect any of the, the, you know, supply side stuff or things that, that don't need to be associated with that anymore. But assuming that you say, yes, I'm actually ready now to uh, carry on uh, with this process. Now you're going to move into the next step where it's kind of the the final item selection process. Uh, and that what that means is you're getting now down to the, the details where you're working on sample type stuff. So the first thing you do is just submit a PO for samples. And this at this point, you still have, you know, two, three, four potential suppliers. Right? Let's say your list started at eight. You realize based on all the preceding things we've discussed, there's really only a handful of these that, that make sense. But I always recommend putting in a PO for samples. This way you can track the sample order, right? I placed the order with these guys on this date. This is the tracking number. And now it came in and the warehouse knows what to do with it and so on and so forth. Now, listen, I'm not, I'm not an idiot. Not always anyway. I know some of you guys are and gals are just out there operating on your own and you have the thing shipped to your house. And so there's no real warehouse requirements. So you're like, ah, Steve, I don't want to do a PO. And I would just tell you, please do POs. I'm begging you. No, POs are important because they track costs, right? So you have product development costs that you're you're not really tracking if you're not tracking the PO costs. Whatever associated shipping, um, external charges, et cetera, all of these can add up. So I want you to pay attention to those. Now, I also want you, when you're you know, doing your PO for samples, to take all of those things that you've sussed out in the top of the uh, qualification side of the process, like the product brief and the specification outlines. And again, those health and safety and key differentiators, they should be in the PO so that the supplier knows, I need a sample that meets all these requirements. Please deliver that to me. And in fairness, there's some aspects of a PO where they have to custom make it, right? It's not on a production line. So there's some reasonable variance where they may say, well, this is going to be a little bit different. You know, I have to 3D print this instead of it being a, a mass production or, you know, we have tooling and things like that we have to do to make a mold. So we're just going to kind of fake this one up and make sure we're all on the same page. Some of that is quite reasonable. And, and I want to be very clear about that. I'm not a, a person who expects a factory to go into a full-scale production just to send me a sample. I'm not, a, you know, unreasonable. And so whatever the, the sample is that's most indicative of the potential for production, that's the type of sample you want to get. And understand that any variances that you see in that sample, you need to clearly communicate if that is not acceptable in some way, how it needs to be during production. Anyway, once you have your PO uh, in for samples, now you're going to track the samples. These are, um, you know, just standard processes that you would put in, you know, uh, 
tracking for a, a PO uh, would be like receiving an order. And if you're ordering a bunch of these, let's say you have four suppliers and you need a, uh, a starting sample with each of them, not a master sample yet. Uh, but that starting sample, you can send all of those to a sample consolidator or your sourcing agent, and they'll just ship them all at once to you and save you some shipping costs. Now you're down to a sample evaluation process. You've got all of them in front of you. You know, the prices for each one. At this point, by the way, we would take very informal photos and any other types of documentation uh, and put those into the project as well so that everyone on the team can see any photos or videos, any comments, and any testing that you may have done independent of the factory. So sometimes we'll take a sample, we'll send it off to a lab in China or the US or somewhere else. Uh, of course, it depends on the, the material and it depends on the proximity of the sample to the testing labs. But there are some things that we wanna test independently and make sure that we don't just take people's word for it. And I'll, uh, I'll just tell you straight out, uh, you know, trust but verify is, a, is a, a fun little thing to say, but you better verify. Like trust is the least important part of that statement. You better verify. And if you don't, it's on you. It's not on the factory. Um, even if they kind of trick you, you have a duty to your customer to get it right. All right. So once you have that sample evaluation process, right, you got all the samples in, you're going through that. Uh, it's a sub process, I suppose, technically you've reached another decision point. And the question is, is this going to go, right? It's another go, no go. And if not, then you got to go back and decide, well, maybe I should get samples from somebody else and uh, start this process again. Because you you already finished the, the first part of the, the validation qualification. And for whatever reason, these samples didn't live up to expectations. So get more samples and go through the tracking and evaluation sub-processes again. And then assuming you did like it after that decision point, now you got a winner, right? You're like, I like this sample the best. I understand the pricing. I understand the specifications. Now I'm ready to get down to business. And this is where you would order a master set of samples. Now I've heard the people on the, the inner tubes, the interwebs use the term master sample a lot. And everybody's got their own definition. So I'm, I'm not passing judgment on what's right and wrong. I'll just tell you how we use it. We want a three versions of that master sample, uh, all produced at the exact same time. And then we have our inspector, whether it's our own person or a third party, take all of those samples that are created and put their initials on them, physically put their initials on them in like permanent ink, uh, some marking that cannot be changed and doesn't, you know, of course, um, compromise, I guess, the, the master sample. But some marking that we know is original can't be faked later. And we get we have that, that person, either our own person or sourcing agent or whomever who's managing the process for you, send one for us at company headquarters, hold one for future inspections, and leave one with the supplier. That's three different master samples that should all match each other. And they should all be uh, carefully stored as well. Some products are susceptible to fading in the light. So those should be clearly kept in you know, drawers or dark places so that um, you don't have variance between you know, the, the sample itself, how it looked at production, and then how it looks a year later you know, when it's washed out by light. 
So think about those types of things in terms of how you get your master samples, how you store the master samples, and how you verify authenticity of that master sample. And I'll tell you, I don't have time for stories right now, but we've had people try to slide in their own master sample, right? They, they're they at the factory, and you meant, I mentioned earlier that the supplier, the factory keeps one of the master samples. The batch was so far off, they just slid another master sample in there. But guess what? We had the photos of the original with our initials on it, right? Our person's initials. And they didn't know that we had that level of detail. And we're like, that's not the master sample. And the inspector had theirs and we had ours at HQ, all with the photos of the original master sample set. And the factory knew they were caught red-handed trying to lie to us. So, you know, although I wish that those situations didn't exist, when it comes back to time to document stuff, that always is the win. So once we have, again, established the winning factory, we've got our master samples. Now we actually make that item from a development item in our system, right? Because we had this project with a, a development item. Now we're actually going to move to the a whole new process called product introduction. And that's a, that's a whole new coat of paint that follows the product sourcing process. So visually, if you think about it, uh, for the audio listeners, you're starting at product discovery. You're working your way through the sourcing and all the sub-steps and processes and sourcing. And then you're like, okay, I'm done with the sourcing. Now it kicks off to the product introduction team. And that's that's really the, the easiest view I can give you uh, that, that gives you a sense of how things should work or how things do work for you know the product savants team and my Simul Global teams. And I, I really think that this is a good opportunity for you, no matter who or where you operate, who you are or where you operate, I should say, to take some lessons from this. You may say, ah, oh, that's too much work, Steve. I don't want to document this, or I don't have a system, or I don't have a this or that. But listen, you can do all this in ClickUp or Trello or any of these other systems. Uh, we happen to use uh, the parsimony.com project management. We have templates that are like, you know, product sourcing process, and it's 18 or 19 steps, all of which are kind of pre-made in the template and then assigned to individuals who are working on that. That's one way to manage it. I'm not saying it's the only way. I'm just saying that's how we do it. Uh, the other thing I would just tell you is it doesn't matter if you're dealing with in China or the United States or Mexico or Europe or anywhere else that you buy product, these same processes are applicable. There's nothing about this that is custom or um, I would say focused on a single country of origin. Uh, I'll give you guys a little uh, free heads up. Uh, we're going to be doing a trip in, to Vietnam in April uh, where the final details are yet to be announced. So this is kind of a little preview for you. But we'll use these exact same processes uh, to procure items in Vietnam, right? It doesn't matter if it's China or Vietnam or Malaysia or any of the other countries. All of it is a system, right? It's a systemic concept that we're trying to share with you. So anyway, that's my uh, little rundown on the product sourcing process. And I, I do, in fact, hope you got something out of that. And I, I will challenge each of you to, you know, if, if you don't want to adopt this process, fair enough, no problem. But just go diagram your own process. What does your process include? And, and how do you execute each phase of that process? Again, in your own systemic thinking. Uh, I personally hate uh, Excel because 
I, I do love Excel because it's, it's simple, but I hate dying by a thousand Excel sheets, right? You find yourself neck deep in Excel sheets at some point and you're like, I don't even know what which way is up anymore. And that's why I like to focus on systemic solutions. Um, but however you choose to do it, I encourage you to get that system nailed down for yourself. And uh, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're learning. And uh, I thank you very much. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.